0: Um, God's covenant with Abram, verses 1 through 21. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless in the air of my house, Eliezer." And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you uh, out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, 3 years old, a ram 3 years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. and behold, And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. And on the day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Canites, the kenizzites the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Raphim, the Amorites, the Kenites, the, Ger- the Gergashites, and Jebusites. This is the word for us today. All
1: right, if you have your Bible close by, open it up to Genesis chapter 15. If you're new to the Bible, Genesis is the first book of the Bible, so we're only 15 chapters in, so start at page 1, flip just a few pages over, and you will be right there in Genesis chapter 15. And... Not to make this more complicated than it needs to be, but once you're at Genesis 15, if you have a book Bible in front of you, uh, open up to Romans 4 and put a bookmark in Romans 4, all right? Uh, Because this morning we're going to look at this story from the life of Abram, uh, but we're also going to look at how the first followers of Jesus understood this story, what this story meant to them as they, like us, read the story of Abraham and said, what do I do with this? What does it look like to follow God in this space? Uh, so as you are finding your space there, the question I want you to think about this morning, uh, we're going to start with is this, what does it mean to have faith in God? Uh, if you were with us last week, I started with the question, what does it mean to have faith? Uh, and we talked about how every single one of us, whether you are belong to a religion, a spirituality, or you're secular and you don't believe in religion, all of us have faith. We put our faith in someone or something. The question is, what are you putting your faith in? Are you putting your faith in your ability to reason and to have logic? Are you putting your faith in the stability of your life? Or are you putting your faith in God? So all of us have faith. But this morning, I want us to then take a next step and say, if that's true, then what does it mean to have faith in God? Uh, And we're looking at this through the story of Abram, who becomes known as Abraham uh, next week. So if you're wondering who is this guy, he's Abraham next week. Uh, this week, he's still Abram, uh, and he is called in the Bible the father of faith, uh, the one who went first, the forerunner, the, uh, the uh, pioneer of faith. Uh, in fact, three of the world's major religions, Christianity, Islam, and Judaism, all point back to Abraham as an example in one degree or, or another, as the character of faith. Uh, but what does it mean to then have faith in God like Abraham has faith in God? Because even in those three religions, Christianity, Islam, and Judaism, they all have different ideas about who God is and what it means to follow him, what it means to trust him. Uh, I was reading a survey this past week, eight in ten Americans still believe that God or a higher power exists in some form or fashion. So even though we're becoming less churchy and less Christian, we still believe generally that God exists in some form or fashion. If you're of my generation, the millennial generation, we are the first majority non-Christian generation in America, Uh, and yet of my generation, 70% of millennials who do not identify as a Christian uh, still believe in God or a higher power. So we're still, we may be unreligious, but we still look to God in some form or fashion. 56% of those same people, when asked what that God is like, Uh, they agreed that that God is something like the God of the Bible. So the question is, is that enough? Is it enough to believe that God exists? Is that the faith that Abraham has? Uh, In this story in particular, we're going to see a change or a transformation in Abraham and his understanding of God. If you were with us us last week, he began this journey of faith, uh, but there's still some things that he has to figure out. And what we're going to find is for Abraham, he had this idea that God was there, obviously, because he answered a call to go, but something has yet to happen in his life that's in fact going to happen in this story. Uh, Because to have faith in God is different than believing that God exists. Uh, If you read the biographies of Jesus, for example, uh, you'll find lots of stories in which Jesus is encountering what the New Testament writers called demons, uh, spiritual beings that had kind of nefarious purposes. Uh, And what you'll find in that story, the surprising thing, is that the demons believe that Jesus is God before the people believe that Jesus is God, and yet they're still demons. This led James, Jesus' half-brother, to write later in his letter that even the demons believe that God exists and shudder. The point is this, that just believing that God exists is not quite the faith of the Bible. It's not quite the faith of Abraham. So if that's the case, then what is? In this story, we're going to see something change in Abram's understanding of God and God's relationship to Abraham as well. And through this story, there's a lot of looking language we're going to pay attention to. So there's just three things that we need to see, three things that we need to see or we need to look at to understand what it means to have faith in God like Abraham has faith in God in this story. The first thing that we must see to have faith in God like Abraham has faith in God is we must see our inability or you must see your inability. Now, look at chapter uh, 15 of Genesis beginning with verse 1. After these things the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not Abram I am your shield your reward shall be very great. Now let's just stop there it says after these things so some things have happened what it has happened. In Genesis 12 Abraham left his homeland he comes to the Canaan uh, the land of Canaan which is the land that God promised but he keeps on going because it's owned by someone else. He finds himself in Egypt, and there's a dramatic story that happens in Egypt that we're going to look at in a couple of weeks. After that, he comes out of Egypt, and he and his nephew Lot, they separate because they had too many sheep and there wasn't enough grass. And then, in chapter 14, right before this, Abraham finds himself entangled in a regional conflict between some powerful tribal leaders. And Abraham actually wins, actually he comes victorious out of this, but he does not take the spoils of war. Instead, he says, I will trust God to provide for me. And so when God comes to him in verse, chapter 15, verse 1, he says, I will be a reward. He's saying, Abram, you've chosen well. You've trusted in me to provide for you. But then look what happens next. Abram said, O oh Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Now, the interesting thing about this is this is the first time Abram actually addresses God in his story. So far in his story, he has listened to God and he has responded to God, but this is the first time that Abram actually asks God a question, the first time that he initiates some sort of back and forth with this God. And what does he say? I don't yet have a child. If you remember last week, one of the main promises that God gave to Abram was that he was going to have lots of children. The problem was his wife was barren and he was 75 at the time. And we're going to see in just a little bit, Abram, when he's having this conversation with God, he's actually around 100 years old, which is not prime childbearing years by any stretch of the imagination. But the question that Abram asks leads us to believe that he and Sarah, his wife, had at least been trying. They had been doing their part of this equation to trust God that he was going to provide an heir. And yet, over the course of 25 years, nothing had happened. No child had come to them. And so Abram is beginning to say, okay, I've done all that I can. What am I supposed to do here, God? Someone else is going to inherit my property. Someone else is going to inherit the land. His circumstances are not lining up with God's promise. And so he says, God, what are, what are you doing here? What am I supposed to think here? Uh, in Romans chapter 4, the Apostle Paul, as he's explaining this story to the first followers of Jesus, uh, he shows us what's going on in Abram's mind. And so this will be on the screen, but if you have it, in Romans chapter 4, this is what the apostle Paul says. Against hope, Abraham believed in hope. With the result that he became the father of many nations, according to the pronouncement, so will your descendants be. That was the promise that God made to him. Without being weak in faith, he considered his own body as dead because he was about 100 years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. See what's happening As Abram in this space is realizing He is unable to produce the life that God wants him to produce. He is not able to. His body, for all intents and purposes, is dead. He is not able to do what God asks him to do to fulfill this promise. And what Paul is telling these first followers of Jesus is that is actually a picture of you and me, that we on our own are dead. We are unable to produce the kind of life that God wants for us to produce. We are unable to give life to goodness and morality and all the right things that God wants us to do. We are dead in our sins, as Paul would say. And so Abram's unable to produce this heir. You and I are unable to produce the goodness that God expects for us on our own. Now, if you've ever tried to change your life in any kind of meaningful way, you've experienced that right maybe it's uh you want to change some aspect of your character and so you try to work on it and and what happens as soon as you get tired or hungry you get a little angry and a little cranky and then that old aspect of your character comes out you try to overcome an addiction that's maybe maybe it's a mini addiction maybe it's a big addiction right it's hard to do that right choosing the good thing does not come out of us naturally like, like, we are unable to produce the real meaningful change to become the kind of people that we are supposed to be. On our own, we produce only death. Just like Abram had for 25 years been, been trying to produce this air, Nothing had happened. You and I, we can try all we want, but we cannot produce the kind of righteousness that God wants from us. We're stuck on our own. I mean, why is it after thousands of years of human history, we're still in the cycle of violence and evil, and hunger, and oppression, you think by now we would have figured it out. No, the reality is, on our own, we only produce death. On our own, we only produce sin and selfishness. Because even if you could, even if you could produce some sort of goodness, or some sort of morality, or some sort of uprightness, don't you know that in your heart of hearts you would begin to feel a little proud of yourself? you begin to think, yeah, I'm doing it. And then you look at the other people who haven't yet figured it out, and you think, right? I always felt super judged when I was, when I was uh, training for a half marathon, and I'd run by the ultra marathoners. Right? They would just blaze past me, and I'm just struggling over here. Right? I knew that they had some thoughts about me, because it's the same thoughts that I have about people who are slower than me when I was trying to run. That's what happens to us when we, when we can produce any sort of goodness, or any sort of uprightness, or any sort of change in my actions, or my attitude, is really quickly I begin to feel a little bit self-righteous begin to think I've got some things going for me. And I can begin to then turn what might be some goodness or morality, and I can then leverage it for my own pride and my own arrogance. Or I then leverage it against God and say, God, I've been good, so therefore you owe me. And now that good deed is not selfless, it is selfish. This is where we are, we're stuck. We cannot produce the goodness in ourselves. We are unable to do it. And even if we could, our hearts would turn it into some sort of selfishness or pride, or arrogance. But the good news is that the Bible and the way of Jesus has an incredibly realistic picture of humans. As you read through the story of the Bible, you'll realize that that Jesus and the the Bible has an incredibly realistic and and understandable view of humans. It's not that we're just like a mixed bag of I'm kind of good and I'm kind of bad, and so as long as my good outweighs my bad. If we had figured out how to do that, we would all be good by now. Now the reality is we are, in the language of the Bible, we are dead. We are unable to produce anything of goodness or righteousness or morality on our own. Abraham is dead, and he's been trying, and he's stuck. And you and I are dead, and we are stuck. We need something different. And so look at what then happens next. Uh, chapter 15 of Genesis, verse 4. And behold, that's another looking word, behold, look at what's about to happen. The word of the Lord came to Abram, this man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And then he said to Abram, so shall your offspring be. And he, Abram, believed the Lord and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. The second thing that you and I must do after we see our inability is we must gaze at God's ability. We must gaze at God's ability. The language here is really intentional, that Abram was looking at his inability. He was glancing at it, or he was seeing it, but the invitation of God here is to go out and to gaze at the stars. You know what it means to gaze at the stars. We even have a word for that, stargazing. I don't know if you saw the full moon in the clear sky last night, but I was letting my dog out, and I just like stopped for a minute in the frigid cold. I was like... That's what God invites Abram to do, gaze at the stars, gaze at my goodness, gaze at my ability to overcome whatever it is that you're facing, gaze at what I can do, don't look at what you've done. That's the invitation of of God to Abram here, is to look at the stars, to count them, if you can even count them. We still haven't counted all the stars, thousands of years later. He says, gaze at my ability. And look what happens in verse 6. Abram believed the Lord. What does that mean? He trusted that God could do what he said he could do. He believed him when he said he would have an offspring of uh, the, the number more than the stars. He believed him. He trusted God and his ability. And what does God do in response? God counted it to Abram as righteousness. What does that mean? What does that mean? Righteousness is moral, upright behavior, being good, being holy, being all that God says we should be. How does Abram get that righteousness? What has he done so far? He simply believed God. He trusted God's ability to do what God said he could do, and God in that moment credits Abram with all the righteousness that is required of him. Abram has done nothing except stargaze and believe that God said he could do this. And in that moment, because Abram believes, God gives him all of the righteousness that is required of him. This is Abram's salvation. This is the moment he goes from believing in God as an idea to trusting in God as a person and God's ability to do what God says he would do. This is what the Bible calls salvation that this is how Abram is saved from his inability, not by trying to overcome his inability, but by trusting God's ability to give him righteousness. And this is saving faith. Saving faith is trusting God to make me righteous. Not trusting my ability to make me righteous, but instead acknowledging my inability and trusting that God will make me righteous in his power and his ability. That's is salvation. This is what the Apostle Paul said about this in Romans 4 16. He says, for this reason it is by faith so that it may be by grace. Here's what he's saying. The way that you get righteousness, the way that you become the person that God wants you to be in God's world is not through trying harder or trying to overcome your inability. Rather, it is acknowledging your inability, what the Bible calls sin, and trusting in God to make you righteous. He says that it is by faith so that it may be by grace, right? Our salvation in God's world, our our ability to follow him and to be righteous is based on his grace for us. I mean, just think about how freeing that is, right? If my salvation is based on me doing something, me overcoming my inability with some sort of moral ability. If my salvation is based on my earning, then I could begin to feel very proud about that. But also then, it would always have a little us versus them dynamic. There'd be those of us who are in because we tried harder, we overcame our sin, and we became good, and there'd be those of us who really struggle over here. And if we're honest, most of us would be over here, not in the righteous camp. Most of us would be over here struggling. But Paul says it is by faith Which means, who can get in? Any single one of us can get in. This is not a matter of, I did X, Y, and Z, and so therefore I'm righteous. This is a matter of saying, I can't do X, Y, and Z. All of us can admit we can't do that. And so I simply have to instead trust God's ability for me. Trust Him for my righteousness. Which means all of us, any single one of us, can do this. But the ones of us who will struggle with this are the ones who are too proud, who can't admit our inability, who can't admit our sin. This is why scripture said, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And this is how God justifies us. He makes us just. What does that mean? Our justification, that's a theological term, but it's a real simple way to think about this. When I go to Sam's Club, what is the justification that allows me into Sam's Club? My membership card. Right, so I walk through the door, I show my membership card, they give me that giant cart, and I stroll through the aisles, I get large discounts and lots of samples. What justifies, what justifies my presence there? My membership card that I paid for. What justifies our presence in God's family? Faith. Trusting God's ability to cover my inability. And how does he do that for you and me? We're not gazing at the stars. What is it that we gaze at? What is it that we trust in? Look at Romans four, twenty-one through 25. This is what Paul says. He, Abram, was fully convinced that, God, that what God promised, he was also able to do. So indeed, it was credited to Abram as righteousness. And this is important, but the statement, it was credited to him, was not written only for Abram's sake, but also for our sake. What he's saying is when this was written, the writer was saying, I want you to understand this for your life. You need to understand what's actually happening here, but also for our sake, to whom it will be credited. To those who believe in the one who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was given over because of our transgressions and was raised for the sake of our justification. So how is it that you and I are made righteous? What is it that we trust to achieve or to get this righteous status? It is that we gaze at God's completed work through Christ on the cross. That we believe that on the cross, Christ was given over for my transgressions, my sin, my inability, all the time that I was proud and selfish and arrogant. All of that is placed on Christ. And, and God paid the price for my, for my sin on that cross. And he raised him to life again. And so when I believe that, when I trust that God was taking care of my sin on the cross, it is credited to you that you are righteous. It is given to you that you are completely upright and how God wants you to be. Paul is saying, Abram was pointing forward to what you and I now get to participate in. That when I see my sin, my transgression, my inability, and I turn from that and I gaze at what God did for me on the cross and the resurrection of Christ, I am counted as righteous. I am made holy and complete. And this is God's good plan and purpose. And it is based on grace, not on earning. And so any one of us can do this. And some of us here, you might be here this morning, and you have an intellectual faith in God. I mean, you believe that he, he's out there, it's kind of a nice idea, right? You're here in church, you're listening to someone talk about God, and that's what you think of when you think of, I have faith in God. That's not what the Bible talks about, of having faith in God. Having faith in God, saving faith, is when I turn from my sin and when I trust in Jesus and what he did for me on the cross. Don't confuse the two. Because you can spend a whole lot of your life thinking, yes, I have faith in God. Yes, I believe in God. But if you have not yet gazed at what he did for you on the cross, you don't have saving faith, and so you're still dead in your sins. And so many folks live in that space. You must have saving faith in what Jesus did for you, to see your inability and to trust in his ability for you on the cross. This is what saves you. And where does that leave us, then? I know many of us have, have have saving faith. Where does that leave us this morning? Look what happens next in Abram's story. He believes the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. Verse 7, the Lord said, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, Abram, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He's saying, how do I know in the everyday aspect of my life, as I'm wandering through the wilderness with you, how do I know that this is going to come true? See, the third thing that you and I have to do is we have to see God's leading in my current circumstances. That God, when, when I turn from my sin and I trust in Jesus, God covenants himself to me. That's what God is doing for Abram here. There's this this weird story that you probably got a little confused about because there's like animals, like go go get some animals, cut them up. What is happening in this space? Here's what's happening in this space. There is an ancient Near Eastern practice called cutting a covenant. Uh, we have records of this, evidence of this, in a couple different ways. And what would happen is if two people wanted to uh, form an agreement that was more than just a handshake agreement, like if you wanted to, like, like, a legally binding kind of thing, right? you couldn't go down to the courthouse, they didn't have those yet. And so what they would do is they would take animals and they would cut them in half. And there would be two rows of animals, and then those two people would walk through the rows of animals arm in arm. And what they are saying is this. If I don't follow through on my promise... Make me like one of these animals. Cut me in half. It was as serious a covenant as you can make. And what, is, what does God do here? God creates, he forms, he cuts a covenant with Abram. Now, in the, in the practice, in the tradition, two people would walk through that line of animals. But what actually happens in Abram's vision? Look at verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch pass between these pieces. You're like, what in the world is happening? In the story of the Exodus, which God predicts or he announces for, for Abram here, he says, in 400 years, your ancestors are going to be in Egypt. This is what happens in the story of Exodus. They're going to be slaves in Egypt, but I'm going to lead them out. And then God makes this covenant. And when God leads his people out of Egypt, he leads them by way of a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud or smoke. In other words, God is foreshadowing what he is about to do for Abram's descendants, that he is going to lead them to freedom and salvation and redemption as a pillar of fire and a a pillar of cloud. And so he's picturing for Abram, this is what I'm going to do. And notice, it is only God's presence that passes through these cut-up animals. It's not God and Abram hand in hand. This is God promising on himself that he would do this. This is the covenant that God forms with Abram, that, that then is the promise for his descendants in the future. See, God is saying, I will lead you through this. I will lead your descendants through this. And yes, you're going to go through 400 years of oppression, you're going to go through 400 years of slavery, and you're not going to see the promises come true. But that does not mean that my word has failed. He covenants himself to Abram and his descendants. He says, I am going to get you through. Not you. You're not part of this covenant. I am promising that I will get you through. And he has these animals to say, this is what will happen if I don't. What does that mean for you and me? You see, on the cross of Jesus, God sacrifices his son for us. When I hear God is saying, let it be to me, let it be like me if I don't do this, on the cross he offers his son for us as a sacrifice. And so where do I look when I'm going through hard times? Where do I look when I can't see God's leading? Where do I look when I'm not sure what God is doing? When my circumstances are overwhelming, where do I look to know what God is doing? I look to the cross of Jesus. That what he accomplished for me there was my salvation and my redemption. He purchased me into his family. And so when my circumstances are overwhelming, when it feels like 400 years until I see the promise of God come true in my life, where do I look to know God's love? I look at the cross of Jesus. That if he offered his son for me, then I can trust him to get me through. And this is what we would call sanctifying faith. Sanctifying faith is trusting God to get me through. What does it mean to be sanctified? To be sanctified is to be uh, made holy. We sang about it in one of the songs earlier. Sanctification is the process of becoming who God wants me to be, of becoming holy and upright and just, of the formation of my character to look like the person and work of Jesus. And so when I trust God to get me through my present circumstances, it is sanctifying faith that is making me more like him. There's a lot of times in our life, like, I I have saving faith, I trust that Jesus died for my sins, I trust God for my righteousness, but my circumstances are really hard right now. Like, it's really hard to see what God is doing. It's really hard to know, am I on the right path or not? And it's hard to know, what's God's heart for me, or what does he want for me? In sanctifying faith, what we say is, I know that God paid the price for my sins through the sacrifice of Jesus. I know that he promised himself to me. And so even if I can't see it right now, Even if I can't feel it right now, even if I'm not sure if I'm on the right path right now, I trust God because He offered His Son for me. And so I can trust God to get me through, through whatever my circumstances are, through whatever the suffering is that I'm getting through. Right now is hard, but I can trust that God's going to get me through because, after all, my belonging is based on grace, not through my effort or my work, which means that I cannot lose it, which means that when I go through suffering and darkness, I'm not going to be abandoned because God has promised himself to me because of the work of Jesus. And so you can trust God to get you through whatever you're facing this morning. Right? You might be in a space that's just overwhelming. You might be in a space that feels like it's been years since you felt God move. And you're just not sure what he's doing. How do you know he is for you? Because he offered his son for you. How do you know you can trust him? Because he raised Christ from the dead for you. This is our covenant promise that God is not going to leave us or abandon us or forsake us, no matter what our circumstances. Because if He gave His Son for us, I can trust Him to lead me through whatever it is I'm facing this morning. So, some of you this morning, the invitation is to step from faith in God as an idea to trusting in God for your righteousness. How do you do that? You see your inability, you acknowledge your sin. And you turn from yourself and you trust in what God did for you in Jesus. That Christ took your sin. And so when you gaze at that, when you trust in that, God credits you with all the righteousness that you need. Nothing else is required but faith in what he's done for you. If you're here this morning and you're going through it, it's hard. Know that God is for you. And that he is not going to abandon you or to leave you or to forsake you because of what he has done for you in Jesus. So I just want to end this this morning. I actually wasn't planning on doing this, but this song this morning uh, kind of drew my my heart and my mind to this. Uh, I just want to end this morning, like if you're going through it, because I know there's some folks who are going through it this morning. I want to end by just reading the end of Romans 8 over you. Because Romans 8 is the promise. That if I am made new by Jesus, if I have been made righteous by God, then his presence is with me and for me and will never leave me or forsake me. And so in Romans 8, we get a picture of this, just a taste of this. So I want to invite you to just, if you will, just close your eyes for a second and just receive these words from Scripture. The promise that God is for me, that he will get me through whatever I'm facing this morning. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's chosen? It is God who justifies who is there to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword know in all these things we are more than conquerors through him? Who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. May you know the truth of that in your heart this morning. Father, we thank you that you have covenanted yourself to us. That in your love and in your grace, you've sought us out. You meet us in our sin and our inability, and you invite us to gaze at your goodness and your grace. Father, for the one who's here this morning, and they've had an intellectual faith in you, would you invite them to turn from their sin and trust in you, knowing that when they do that, all that is required, all the righteousness is applied to them. God, for the many folks this morning who are going through it, they can't see how you're leading, and things seem overwhelming, painful, confusing. Would you show them that you promise yourself to them that you are for us because of what Christ has done for us? And we thank you for your grace that frees us from the burden of having to be good enough, and instead invites us to trust you. Would you do that work in us this morning? Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.